Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're going to talk today about mental illness. Here are some statistics from the National Alliance on Mental Health or Mental Illness a website, uh, NAMI the National, uh, NAMI. Approximately one in five adults in the U.S., 43.8 million or 18.5 percent experiences mental illness in any given year. Approximately one in 25 adults in the U.S., 9.8 million or 4 percent experiences serious mental illness in a given year that substantially interferes or limits one or more major life activities. Approximately one in five youth aged 13 to 18 experience severe mental disorder at some point in their life. 11 percent of adults in the U.S. Uh, live with schizophrenia. 6.9% adults in the U.S., 16 million had at least one major depressive episode in the past year. Uh, so among uh, 20.2 million adults in the U.S. who experienced substance uh, abuse, substance use disorder, uh, 50% or 10 million adults had uh, co-occurring mental illness. Uh, so we see by those statistics mental illness is prevalent, a serious problem. National Alliance on Mental Illness is uh, trying to help. And so we have some representatives from Cache Valley, uh, NAMI, with us. We welcome in uh, Greg Andrew. Thanks for being with us. Appreciate the opportunity to uh, share a few insights with you, uh, Tom. Thanks a lot. Your outreach coordinator along with your wife. Yes, Julie and I are, uh, well, we've been working with the outreach uh, program for about a year now. And uh, we first got involved uh, because a member of our family had had a uh, problem with mental illness. He was uh, bipolar. And uh, kind of took us by surprise uh, when he had a significant episode. And so we needed to get a little bit of information. Well, we needed to get a lot of information. Uh, and we turned to NAMI, and it's uh, r- really proved to be uh, a godsend for us and helped us to uh, deal with the situation at hand in a uh, more educated way. And we've uh, really appreciated their influence in our lives, and so we thought we'd try to help out as uh, coordinators and get the word out as well. Julie Andrew, you're also outreach coordinator. Yes, yes, and um, I was actually the one who, uh, like he said, a close family member who had this um, experience with bipolar. Uh, When I was talking to one of the social workers working with him, I said, what can we do to help ourselves? Because we don't know much about this. How can we be helpful? And This was in Salt Lake, and he suggested, he says, when you go back to Logan, look for NAMI. They have a really good program there, and I think they can give you some help. And so we were lucky that we found family to family. I called the headquarters of NAMI here in Cache Valley, and within two weeks I was able, Greg and I were able to enroll in a 12-week course, which, like he said, has really been helpful for us because you have so many questions when you start dealing with mental illness and we learned that you actually call it brain disorder because it really is um, out of the control you could say it is in the brain it's something that people deal with and so it should be seen as a medical illness and so you're looking for ways to best help people they need to cope with it but we as family members also need help and I think that's what NAMI does so well Mm. Uh, let's go to uh, Lisa Cornwell. Uh, what's your role with uh, Cash Valley NAMI? I've been involved volunteering with NAMI Cash Valley for about 12 years, teaching the family-to-family class. This is the class that's meant for families who have a member of their family who are dealing with mental illness. And sometimes we forget about the families. The person with the mental illness is really struggling, but their families are struggling too and they need help and support, and they need some instruction on how to handle this, where to go for resources and for support. And if you've never dealt with this situation, you have no idea how difficult it is to to deal with and and how much we feel alone. And it's really nice to have NAMI to be able to meet with other people who understand what we're feeling and what we're experiencing, and we can share resources and really help each other to cope. And we welcome in Nick Cornwell, who's also with Cash Valley NAMI. I teach uh, with Lisa the family to family at uh, about eight years now, and it did take a family crisis for me to accept that fact. Um, and I also teach the peer-to-peer 
I was trained about a year ago, and that the peer-to-peer is a uh, education process for people who have a brain disorder and being taught by individuals that have a diagnosed disorder, which I have. I'm bipolar, um, and I find that what's nice about the peer-to-peer is um, you begin to realize that you're not the only one um, carrying this um, problem around and when you realize that there are more people with uh, mental illness, then you begin to realize what you've been going through is something that uh, other people are going through. So there's always a bonding process that goes on in that class. The family to family has uh, enabled me to realize um, that um, these problems um, with younger people as they grow up through it, <coughs> excuse me, they are uh, able to um, resolve those issues, the people that we're teaching, so that they can start dealing with their loved ones uh, in a way that through communication and the way they react to their mental illness. And so Lisa and I um, have been able to uh, help people uh, in that uh, respect over the last eight years. Mm. I'd like to start maybe with, a, you know, here's some uh, stories. Start with you, uh, Nick, with, with your personal uh, when were you diagnosed? How did you, um, when did you start experiencing and when? Well, I grew up not knowing mm-hmm. uh, that I had a disorder. I just thought my personality was just the way it was. And as a kid, I did have a, uh, a, psycho- a psychotic break. Um, and I had to, uh, my parents or my mother had me go to a child psychiatrist. But one or two visits, my father then came in for a, visit with the doctor and he basically came out and said we're leaving there's nothing wrong with you crazy doesn't exist in our family Mm. i married lisa 21 years ago and probably in our second year of marriage um, her and her mother recognized uh, the fact that there were things going on with me and they knew that uh, it was uh, bipolar disorder but i didn't accept it until about 10 12 years ago um, I played the game, uh, went to therapists, went to doctors, was taking medication. Supposedly, I would I would cheek it or spit it out. Uh, and then um, the thing that um, is the hardest for someone who has a later diagnosis like I did is that you have to make that um, transition from uh, the personality you were always being right, never listening to people, having grandiose ideas, uh, to an individual that recognizes that what's gone on throughout your life is a disorder. It doesn't mean that that defines you, but at some point you have to realize that through medication and therapy, uh, you can make changes, and you're always going to carry this, this disorder. It's not going to go away, but for me... And looking back at the past, um, I can see the problems that I created, not only for myself, but for my family. And as a result of that, not having the education um, for myself and my family, um, there's, I only talk to uh, one or two of my sisters, so there's, I'm estranged from my own mother. So those problems exist, um, and today I'm glad that I know why. Um, and so that has helped me out quite a bit over the past eight years or so that I've taken my medicine and recognized what I need to do to step up and be an individual who can be uh, someone can rely on. Mm. I can give help to other people. Right, Lisa. How how is that? You you marry a, a sharp man. You <laughs> fall in love. <laughs> And uh, then some problems begin to appear. You, it dawns on you there's something there. What uh, What were your thoughts? There is. Um, it was. It came as a surprise, and I didn't actually recognize it. It was my mother that pointed it out to me. You know, when he has these episodes, we can calendar it and actually see that it's coming. And when I started recognizing that, then I started recognizing the symptoms of bipolar disorder. In addition to Nick, we have a son and a daughter who also are living with mental illness. And 
so we've dealt with it for quite some time now. Our son is 31 years old, and he was adopted when he was about a year and a half. And at the time, he was diagnosed with reactive attachment disorder. And we, as a child, we went through all of the experiences that that brings, that diagnosis brings. But by the time he was about 15, he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. And a couple of years later, we took him to the Amon Clinic in California for brain mapping, and at that time they diagnosed him with schizoaffective disorder, which is a combination of schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Hmm. Uh, so that's uh, so you you definitely need some something like NAMI, right? You need to you need to find some support, right? Some friends to know you're not alone. That's one thing. We were desperate for help, trying to navigate the system and not knowing what we were doing, never having experienced anything like that before. And it was um, a friend of a friend who referred us to NAMI, and it's been a lifeline for us. And the thing that I think is really exciting about NAMI is that there are so few resources And NAMI actually began in the 1970s with a group of people who had loved ones with mental illness realizing that there wasn't support and help, and they sat down around a kitchen table and came up with the concept of NAMI, and and now NAMI is in all the states in this country, and it's in several other countries as as well. It's spreading throughout the world because it's so needed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, before I go to the Andrews, have them tell their story. Um, Nick, I wonder, so, so you go through your own struggle, then you have a child, or more than one child, who's who's suffering from what, what, brain disorder. That's what we want to call it, uh-huh. brain, brain disorder. What what were your thoughts at that point? Um, when Lisa and I married, um, she told me that our son had uh, some problems, and um, I... All I did was say to her that it's, I'm not worried about it. I'm an elementary school teacher, so I think my words were, it's a piece of cake. I'll be okay. And as uh, he grew, as he got older, I began to, my um, whole approach was he's lazy, doesn't want to do anything. He doesn't have any problems other than, than that. And um, there was a struggle for the first few years in our marriage, and Lisa had started, um, like she said, 12 years ago, involved with NAMI. I didn't want to have anything to do with it because I really, truly believed that everybody else had a problem. And so uh, watching him grow up, um, it was always, he's lazy, he doesn't want to do anything, he's defiant, he has all these problems. And being bipolar myself, uh, I was always right, he was always wrong. And so as I watched him grow up, I didn't really want to accept the fact that he had some disorder that uh, was causing these problems. And it caused a lot of dissension in the family. Um, And I think about it now, I look back at it, and I realize and I recognize that this is a real um, situation in people's lives, that mental illness is here, it's going to exist for all time. Um, It doesn't define the individual. And so there are still some things that he and I have to work out. Uh, But I look at him now in a very very different way, realizing that the struggles he has um, are real. Uh, The problems he has do exist in his life. And so I'm more uh, understanding, um, probably a little more compassionate, looking back on myself. Mm. We turn uh, back to Julian uh, and Greg Andrew. So, close uh, family member diagnosed with you said bipolar. Yes. D- disorder. Tell me, tell me about uh, before it, uh, him, right? Uh, before he was uh, diagnosed. Yeah, in high school, um, I kind of just thought maybe he had a little bit of depression. You know, typical. You go to high school, maybe you don't have the f- friends you want, or I really didn't think too much about it. But then he went to college, and it was in in his 20s when he uh, went to a doctor, and they finally diagnosed him as bipolar. And he had a psychiatrist and a therapist, and they 
worked together, and he was on medication, and he seemed to be doing pretty well. And he did that for several years, and then um, my husband and I were out of the country for about a year, and when I came back, I met with him, we had lunch. By now he was in his 30s, and um, he said, oh, by the way, I haven't been taking medication for about two years. And I said, really? Why? And he said, well, um, they misdiagnosed me. I don't really have that. I think it was just combination of some medicines I was taking for depression. And yeah, I think I'm fine. And um, at that point, I mean, still, I hadn't learned a whole lot about bipolar. I'd read a couple of books. But I thought, well, I guess that could happen. But within less than a year, um, he had a major break. And so at that point, I knew that, you know, it wasn't okay. And um, I think that was the first time when I thought I need to find out more what's going on here. And and it was really interesting because Nick and Lisa were our teachers. And just having somebody we could talk to that understood what's going on and we feel so lost. And our son's not a minor. You have, you know, very little control at that point. You know something's wrong, but you can't make them go get help. And so we kind of had to navigate all of that. Luckily, um, he uh, eventually, um, things worked out. He spent some time in the hospital, and they got him on medication, and that really helped. But I'm just saying that there's so many things that you learn as a parent, and the class really helped me in the sense that, you know, he we did get him to sign papers so that we could talk to doctors and get information. And you really have to get that with who you're working with if they're a, not a minor anymore, and that sometimes can be challenging. So there are just many things you have to navigate. And I, I think what I liked the most with Nick and Lisa teaching us is that when you find out you have a child with a brain disorder, you go through a real mourning process. You go through all the steps of mourning, and, you know, you're angry, you're sad, you're, you keep thinking, well, sometime this is going to end, but then you come to the realization that it's not going to end, and so you work through the steps. And then um, what's neat is to get to the point where you feel, you know, you can manage it, you can cope, you can go with it. But again, that can up, go up and down as well because at different times. But I think when we started, when we said we wanted to help with outreach and tell people about it, I think that really helped us. You get to the point where you want to share it with other people because you know how much it's helped you. Mm-hmm. Uh, Greg, I wonder, it's, it, it, for the most part, uh, it's ongoing, right? Brain disorders, it's, it's, it's chronic. It's, uh, you, you manage it, treat it, but it's there. And uh, I, I kind of like to maybe compare it a little bit to maybe having diabetes. Um, that's a physical disorder, and mental illness is a, basically, we call it a mental disorder sometimes, but it's a physical disorder because it's the brain in some type of a trauma. And uh, if, you know, a family member has got uh, diabetes, you certainly encourage them to get to the doctor and take the appropriate medications, and they, you know, they do quite well. And I think that can be the same with uh, individuals with uh, mental or brain disorders. And if, uh, they're, if they get on board and are willing uh, to take uh, the appropriate medications, then they do very well in in society. And, uh, you know, most of the time you wouldn't even know they had an issue if they'll stay with those. But as is so often the case, sometimes they say, oh, well, I'm doing great without these medications, and they go off them, and then uh, their situation deteriorates again, and then they have to get back on. And so a lot of it is, uh, I think, the individual and the family buying into the fact that you know, get on the right medications and get the right, you know, individuals listening to you, uh, and you'll probably do very well. Hmm. Let's take a brief break. When we come back, you're listening to Access U, Tom. Tom Williams talking about, I've talked, I've uh, labeled it mental illness. NAMI would like us to use the term brain disorder? Correct. So we're talking about brain disorders on the, on the program today. And we have with us uh, four good folks from uh, Cache Valley NAMI, National Alliance on Mental Illness, uh, Julie Andrew, Greg Andrew, Lisa Cornwell, and Nick Cornwell. More following this. We'll talk about stigma when we come back. Along the banks of the Nile River, 
Egyptian farmers grow bananas, cotton and rice, but have no use for the leaves and stems left over from harvest. Much of this material is burned, a practice that leads to air quality problems and public health concerns. But biological engineers at USU see a solution. They've developed a way to turn that unwanted plant waste into something useful. Through a process called catalytic pyrolysis, the material is broken down and made into oils or polymers that can be turned into bio-based plastics or everyday goods like home insulation, adhesives or oil-based paints. Support on Utah Public Radio for Creating Tomorrow is provided in part by our members and the College of Engineering at Utah State University, offering undergraduate and graduate degrees in biological engineering. Information at engineering.usu.edu. back with uh, Julie Andrew and Greg Andrew and Lisa Cornwell and Nick Cornwell. They are all with uh, Cache Valley NAMI, National Alliance on Mental Illness. And if you Google NAMI, N-A-M-I, you'll get, uh, you can find the National Organization, Utah Organization of the Cache Valley Organizations uh, for NAMI. Uh, we're talking about the brain disorders uh, and the related topics on the program uh, today. And... Uh, we would love for you to tell your story. This program was recorded yesterday, so it needs to be by email, but we'd love to hear your story um, at upr. Uh, upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com. Um, so uh, before the break, I, uh, I, I informed you that we'll be talking about stigma. Stigma is a big big part of this, isn't it? Stigma. Um, so Nick Cornwell, you, you said your dad... Told you how the psychiatrist visits. He said, our family doesn't do crazy, right? That's what it was, yep. And, uh, and that's an attitude, per, you know, hopefully that's changing, but but probably not a real unusual attitude at the time. The, the thing that I recognize today is there are still people um, who will say things like, well, for instance, our daughter. Um, the one that she's diagnosed with bipolar and OCD. Um, and when she married, uh, she married an individual who's also OCD and has some anxiety. And an individual uh, made the statement that they shouldn't have children. And so you you hear something like that. There are statistics that we teach about um, family members uh, having um there's a percentage of people who do have uh, some type of brain disorder, but the numbers are not as high as people think. And so to hear someone say something like that, she also, when she was in school, uh, made a comment one time that she felt like a freak. And so when you hear these types of things with your own children, um, you still recognize that there are people out there that don't want to have something to do with you because in their mind, it could be contagious. They might catch the mental disorder disease, which we know doesn't exist. Mm. Yes, um, Lisa. Also, statistically, we hear one in five people have a mental illness. But I actually believe it's much higher than that. But people aren't recognizing the, the symptoms or they're not willing to talk about it and go for help. So we can't actually get a very accurate um, picture because people won't go for help. Hmm. So let me start. I'd, I'd like to hear from uh, each of you on this, but to start with Lisa. Um, so, you know, we've had the comparison of uh, brain disorder to, say, diabetes or to some mm-hmm. other chronic uh, uh, illness. Um, we, but the, the, the brain is at the center of, uh, you know, social interaction. It's at the, the center of, you know, emotional interaction. There's maybe where some of the stigma comes from because it's very apparent with, you know, if you have diabetes, you can go home and treat it and and uh, people maybe aren't aware of mental illness. If you're in social interactions, then it perhaps is very apparent. So how do you, how do we combat the stigma then? Well, I think it's education. And we talked before the break a little bit about the chronicity of the problem. But at NAMI, we believe that it's not so much that the problem is chronic and can't be helped. 
The problem is that we don't have the adequate resources and system of care that really people with brain disorders deserve. And if we had that system of care in place, that many people would be getting better. Hmm. Uh, so, Julie, Andrew, what, uh, first of all, on, on stigma, how, how best to combat that? And do you think it's changing? Do you think things are getting better? Um, I'm hopeful it is. Um, you hear more and more people coming out, famous people that say there is a stigma and we need to get rid of the stigma. And I think that helps when big names come out and say, I dealt with this, you know, with bipolar and I was able to get on medication and I'm an actor or an actress or, you know, whatever it is, athletes, different people. And, and I have to say in our own situation, um, my son is very intelligent and he does really well, um, very successful in his um, occupation in his endeavors and so when he's on his medication he's very successful you wouldn't know so what I'm thinking is I don't think every brain disorder sets somebody apart socially quite often they're just fine and I think that's important to them as well I know with him it's just you know he wants people to know I'm fine I'm okay you know so it's it's we need to get past the disorder the stigma that they're different or there's you know they're not normal because they really are normal. Mm -hmm. And if they're on their medication, they do fine. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Greg, Julie mentioned uh, celebrities. So we, we just heard, at least I've just heard recently, uh, Prince Henry, Prince Harry mm -hmm. in, uh, in the U.K. has come out talking about uh, mental health issues that he's suffered, uh, long-term issues that he didn't talk about publicly until recently. Uh, after the death of his mother, uh, Tanner Mangum, BYU quarterback, uh, recently came came forward. I assume that kind of thing helps. You know, it's uh, just nice to know that it's being talked about. And I think that's probably uh, the biggest battle there is let's talk about it a little bit more. And the more we talk about it, the more uh, comfortable we feel with the situation at hand. And if you can feel comfortable with a situation, then I think then you're able to uh, deal with it and take the proper steps necessary to, you know, create a better situation for whoever's involved in the, the situation, whether it's the person with the mental uh, or the, the brain disorder, which could be anxiety. We hear that all of the time. Mm -hmm. Or the family who has a person who's anxious all the time. Um, so talking about is significant in my mind. Mm. Uh, Lisa, I want to turn back to you. Um, so you're daughter, we learned, at, at least at one point, said, oh, I feel like a freak. Yes. Uh, was that at, at school or just in general? or All of the above. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> she, she was first diagnosed, well, she started having problems about 14, and they diagnosed her with OCD and anxiety and treated her with a lot of medication. It wasn't until she was about 20 that we took her to the Amon Clinic for brain mapping, and they discovered that she had bipolar disorder. And just having a correct diagnosis and getting on the correct medication made a huge difference in her life. Mm. And and that's why I personally am in such support of brain mapping. It's not available widely, but there are places that do it. And we follow Dr. Daniel Amon, Nick and I do, and and his perspective is that he, he compares not getting brain mapping to going to a mechanic with your car and explaining what the car sounds like and what you're dealing with, but never having them lift the lid and look inside and see what's going on. Mm -hmm. And with the brain, it's very similar. We need to be able to get in there and get pictures and see what's actually happening. So tell me a little bit more about brain mapping. This is brain scan? There there are different types of brain scans, and I wish I knew all of the different types, but we went to the Amon Clinic, mm. and that information on that is online. Amon is A-M-E-N, Dr. Daniel Amon, and he, he does SPECT imaging, and we just, it made a huge difference for our family to actually get a correct diagnosis hmm. because depending on the doctor you're explaining it to and how much understanding he has, if he's not actually looking at a picture, he's just guessing. Hmm. Yeah. 
I want to talk a little bit about, uh, I want to talk about, uh, well, let's bring it up right now. Um, so if you have a family member, listeners have a family member, and you, you suspect there's something there, you, you need to get that family member for some help. Maybe you have been experiencing some problems. What What's the first step? Where, where to go? The if, first steps. If it were me, I would go to NAMI. Okay. We have a lot of people who take the classes that don't have a diagnosis. But we talk about the symptoms for each of the illnesses in these classes. And I think it helps people get a better idea of what they're dealing with and where to go for help. And and I think that's why it was such a lifeline for us because we were floundering trying to figure out all this information on our own. And all of our classes are free. We give um, big manuals with lots and lots of information, and they're free to the person taking the class. They're all paid for by grants, and so it's a really great place to start. Hmm. What would the others of you suggest? I mean, you've 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 gone through it, right? Yes. Um, well, you can go to your family doctor and tell them what's going on. And sometimes they have recommendations, and, you know, if it's serious, I think they will send you to a psychiatrist or someone with more knowledge. We had Dr. Lisa Fraley this last week come and talk for a public information meeting, and she did an excellent job telling people, you know, different things you can do. But you you certainly could start with a family doctor, and from there just realize that if it's something that has to do with the brain that ultimately you would probably want to get help from a psychiatrist because you don't go to the your general doctor for the your ear, nose, and throat. I mean, if it gets something more serious, you should go to someone specifically trained in that area. And, and I think that that's a really good way to go because you need to start somewhere. And they usually do um, kind of a questionnaire to just get a general feel. But you have to realize they haven't been trained specifically for that. So if it's more serious, they should probably recommend you to the psychiatrist or psychologist. Right, right. We also in NAMI, um, in our classes, we do give a list of available uh, individuals here in the valley, um, therapists, uh, psychologists, uh, yeah, psychiatrists, and uh, those individuals who are available uh, to treat people. Part of the problem is is we're we don't have a great number of psychologists or psychiatrists or therapists in the valley, and so um, Lisa has put together a resource list that we give to our um, class members so that they can start uh, looking for that help. The most difficult thing is usually has to do with insurance. And so in many cases, individuals with some type of disorder, if it's severe enough, they probably have a difficulty with employment. So what th- what happens is then they start self-medicating drugs and alcohol. And so I think one of the areas that needs to be looked at closely is uh, insurance for these people to get the help. And so um, those who um, really are having trouble, I agree the first place probably to look is at NAMI because then you can be directed from there for the help that you need. Hmm. And there is a NAMI in every county in the state. So if you go to NAMI Utah, they'll have listed whoever is in charge of NAMI in your in your county so that you could contact them and find out about classes and resources. Okay. And that's uh, N-A-M-I-U-T. You go to namiutah.org, mm-hmm. I believe it is. Um, so just finally in this segment, we'll, and then we'll proceed to the last segment of the program. Uh, maybe I can start with this with, uh, with Greg Andrew. Um, so how are the finances with this? This is, I'm guessing this is expensive to get a diagnosis, get treatment. It can be, and and in our uh, experience, uh, we were fortunate to get uh, our family member into uh, a facility in uh, Salt Lake City, and uh, it was pretty expensive, but uh, we were able to uh, work out an arrangement that was really, for us, a godsend, and 
not saying that that will work for everyone, but you know it can work, and uh, usually you're able to find you know options of help out there, and uh, those institutions that uh, allow individuals with brain disorders into their system uh, are aware of the financial problems that are out there too. So they can work well with you uh, a lot of times. Hmm. Let's uh, take another break. Uh, we're talking about uh, mental illness, brain disorders, talking uh, about um, various related topics. And we have with us Julie Andrew, Greg Andrew, Lisa Cornwell, and Nick Cornwell, all from Cash Valley NAMI, National Alliance on Mental Illness. And we'll have more following this break. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Can a mother forgive her child's murderer? Alyssa Parker managed to do it. Her daughter Emily was one of the children killed at Sandy Hook Elementary School. And in her new book, An Unseen Angel, Parker takes us on her journey of devastation, of faith, and how she found a way to forgive her daughter's killer. That's next time on Here and Now. Join us this morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Hey, I'm Tom Power. Daniel Radcliffe will be here. Yeah, that Daniel Radcliffe. Harry Potter. He and Joshua McGuire talk about starring in the production of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead in London and their real-life friendship on stage. It's coming up on Q from PRI Public Radio International. Join us this afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. We're back with our final segment with uh, members of uh, Cash Valley NAMI. NAMI, if you don't know, hopefully it's the words out, right? People associate that phrase with National Alliance on Mental Illness. And uh, you can find uh, NAMI Utah at uh, NAMI, N-A-M-I-U-T dot org. It's also a national organization. You can find the Cash Valley uh, chapter of the group as well. We have with us Julie Andrew, Greg Andrew, Nick uh, Cornwell, and Lisa Cornwell. And uh, we'd love to hear your experience via email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. No phone calls uh, because we uh, recorded this conversation yesterday. Um, let me, I want to get into stereotypes and labels and how we see people. Um, let me tell you a, a story of my own. I've shared this a couple of times on this program, very apropos here. I met a gentleman um, in uh, in church work, and so this this was a, a a person that I had responsibility or opportunity to to see if I could help. And uh, so at first, I will admit, I saw him almost completely through the lens of his mental illness, his brain disorder, um, and uh, that's the way I saw him. But uh, along the way, um, we connected. We there was something about him and something about me. We made a connection. And I, I, I just liked him. And so as we went along, more and more I saw him as him. And oh, by the way, he has a brain disorder. And I think that's, that's where we should be, right? Um, but all too often I think we're probably where I was, you know, formerly with, with him. So let me direct this first to, to you, Nick Cornwall. Obviously you, with your bipolar disorder, you would not want to be known as, you know, have a big label of, Cross your forehead with that. You want to be known as Nick, right? Um, do you, have you had people interact with you from the former perspective, just sort of through the prism of your your mental illness, or uh, do people generally see you, the you, you? Um, yeah. Well, at first, um, when I started teaching, um, of course, I was always right. Um, I had all the answers. Uh, tenured teachers, I made a comment to a teacher one morning that, if she were a good teacher, she'd get to school early like I do and be prepared. Um, I had to finally, when I recognized and accepted my disorder, um, I was able to discuss this with people. But up to that point, people were standoffish. They looked at me. Um, here's a guy that's obnoxious, somebody who thinks he knows everything, who's very um, verbose, who thinks that... What he's doing is the only way to do it. And uh, letting people know in my profession, my colleagues, know what the disorder is and why I've acted that way 
it's given me a core of friends um, who recognize uh, the problem as it existed and today having being bipolar they're now accepting and they realize that I'm doing my very best and I'm uh, taking care of myself and and it, it's nice because some of my colleagues have family members that have some problems and so they're willing to uh, be more open-minded and looking at the individual in a different way instead of um, labeling them uh, with that word crazy or insane they start to recognize that this isn't uh, something that they woke up one morning and said, gee, I want to have a brain disorder so I can ruin my life and everybody else's life. Mm-hmm. Um, Greg and Julie, with your family member, what is this? does this color his friendships? Does he, is he able to, you know, of course you you don't introduce yourself as parties, as, and parties are saying, hey, I've got a brain disorder. But people learn that maybe as they go along, as they become friends with him. I don't know. Yeah, you know, he he actually has quite a few friends, and having gone through this, um, it's helped him realize who his friends are. I mean, I think there's some people that just can't handle it, and they go away, but um, it's kind of like Greg and I were talking, when you meet someone and they say, oh, my son has cancer, I mean, you just, you commiserate with them, and you feel bad, but you say, oh, my son has a brain disorder, They kind of change the subject. I mean, it's just they don't know what to say. It's a little hard to talk about. So I think even you have to remember, I I think one thing I learned in the class is how much of a trial we think we're having a hard time. Imagine him, what he's going through, because everyone is looking at him. And so I think that's one thing he's done really well. He's worked really hard. And, And it is a lot of work for the person with the brain disorder. They have to make conscious decisions and make choices and be willing to do and it, it's it's a lot of work and exercise is important I mean there's lots of things they can do to help them and he's done a lot of work that way so I admire him and and I think it's the same way I look at him differently be in a positive way in that before I couldn't understand it and now I understand wow he's done a lot and he's working hard and when he accomplishes this it's amazing because it'd be a lot harder than for me sometimes mm, yeah so uh, Lisa, I wonder uh, what would your advice be, you know, to someone encountering one of your children, you know, to maybe meeting them. Um, and, and, you know, as as Julie said, if you were to say, oh, my son or daughter has cancer, then you'd get commiseration, right? But sometimes my son or daughter has a brain disorder, might be a different, a different reaction. What, what would your advice be? Well, first of all, I I have heard, and I don't remember this, But there was a time when people were afraid of people with cancer. I guess they were afraid they might catch it or something. And so people with cancer were shunned as well. And and that's not the case today because we have a better understanding. And I'm hoping that that is the case with mental illness eventually, that once we as a society understand it a little bit better, that those kind of... um, things will go away. I also think it's important for us to look at people with mental illness as people. And I like what you said about that, recognizing your friend as a friend first. And so I like to say, my son son is living with schizophrenia. He is not schizophrenic. It's not who he is. He's a person living with an illness. And so just changing the way that we look at it and perceive it, I think, is important. Mm. Just have a couple minutes left. Um, I was fascinated by something on the uh, one of the websites here. I think this was the NAMI Utah. Um, something called man therapy. So that, and I don't know anything about this. I have a video here. Man therapy seeks to empower men to take action, ownership of their mental health, and overall wellness by increasing help-seeking behavior. So just reading that paragraph, and I, you know, I didn't go on to read the rest of it. I could, I could just guess. I don't, statistics may or may not bear this out, but just anecdotally, that men may not seek help as readily. With this, as with many other things, to go back to the stereotyping or the stigma, when I told my brother um, that I was bipolar, his comment was, "Are you still riding your bike? Because if you did." 
you'd get those endorphins going, you'd be okay. And so what I learned, what I see when Lisa and I are teaching family to family, many of the men that come into the class, they'll sit there with their arms folded with that look like, oh, yeah, prove it to me. And so as the time goes on, I let them know, you know, that there are men with disorders who can get help. But it just seems like most men um, think, well, they want to fix everything. We want to fix and so do we really need to be fixed? Hmm. So I think that's the difficult part with men. Hmm. I just want to uh, uh, give each of you a you know, final say here, anything else you'd like to say. Well, I want to mention this. this. This touched my heart. This is on the NAMI Utah site. The Utah State Hospital Forgotten Patient Cemetery Project, which I just learned on this website. Um, Utah State Hospital is partnering with NAMI Utah to raise funds, construct a monument, and uh, individualized memorials. This kind of gets to the fact that... Uh, People with mental illness, especially people institutionalized, um, uh, have tended to be, you know, we kind of put them away, right, and, and kind of be forgotten. So this is a this this was a heart touching uh, project that I learned about here. Um, so uh, let me start with uh, Nick, and then go around around the room here at the at the end, just a few minutes left. What uh, what would you say like to say at the the end, and uh, what services and and, and uh, resources would you like to point people to? I would like uh, people to understand that the only way they're going to get a grip on what individuals uh, who are dealing with a brain disorder is to become educated. And they can find that, uh, you know, they can go on the site, they can uh, contact um, the hospital, uh, their doctors, because NAMI is visible. And so it would be uh, really a great thing if people who are dealing with this situation just get past the stigma part, um, you're not a diseased person who's going to uh, have people come to you and then become contagious. So go out there and find out what's available to you so you can help your loved one. Alisa. Hmm. Oh, well, I think my heart breaks really for people living with mental illness because of the lack of resources. And I really wish as a society we would do better with that. And even the new health care plan um, that they're trying to get through Congress has eliminated help for the mentally ill. And I think that's a travesty. And I think that we all need to get on our email and on our phone and let our congressmen know that that's not acceptable, that we can't discriminate against this illness that it needs to be covered in, in all health care plans. I'll turn next to Julie Andrew. I agree with Lisa on that. We definitely need more funding for mental illness, not less. And I, one other thing that sticks out for me is I learned the phrase, knowledge is power. And I think that especially is a good thing to remember when you're dealing with a brain disorder or mental illness. The more you learn... Like, I know when it first happened, I was just feeling like I was hanging onto the tail of a tiger and I was being thrown all over. But once you start gaining knowledge and you learn about different disorders, then you can ground yourself and understand, and it, it becomes manageable. I mean, you can work with it. You just gain because you've gained knowledge about it. So I think that's part of the get away from that stigma. Just the more you know about it, talk to people about it. And if you have a friend that... Maybe they need help if, if you know they're dealing with a loved one. Be willing to reach out to them and, and talk to them. And, and we need to help each other more, not less. And uh, Greg will give you the last word. That's significant. See what I can do with it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, for me, one of the great things I learned at this family-to-family class uh, that we took was that when an individual has a, a brain disorder, it's not for because of something that that individual did. Um, more generally speaking, it's uh, maybe it's a hereditary thing in their genes. Um, you know, if you have heart disease in your family, well, well, you deal with that, uh, and sometimes that's the way it is uh, with uh, brain disorders. Or maybe you had an experience, uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome 
we hear that quite a bit is because of an experience that an individual may have had. So it's not your fault, but it happened. Uh, you've got it. You deal with it. And I have uh, rheumatoid arthritis, and it wasn't a happy thing when I found that out. Uh, but my joints were telling me that, you know, I had an issue. And so uh, I went to the doctor, and after trial and error or with several medications, I found one that worked for me, and I think it's somewhat similar with uh, a brain disorder. Mm. Uh, I didn't, you know, get rheumatoid arthritis because I was a bad person. It just happened. Mm. And I think that's the way brain disorders are too. Mm. Just, yes. I just wanted to mention, since we're the outreach coordinators, that um, we actually have a family-to-family session starting this Thursday, the 20th, 7 p.m., at the, it's in the um, on 200 North in the basement of Bear River Mental Health. If you go down the steps on the north side, the NAMI office is down there. And so I know until I had an issue with mental illness in my family, I didn't really pay attention. But if anybody out there is hearing this maybe for the first time and you have an issue that you're dealing with, I would say come Thursday night and then at least you can start getting some answers. All right. And you can find out much more at the websites. <laughs> so I'll mention first uh, Uh Good folks who've joined me for the hour are uh, with that group, Julie Andrew, Greg Andrew, Lisa Cornwell, and Nick Cornwell. You could go to NAMI Utah, which is N-A-M-I-U-T.org, or just NAMI.org for the national. It's the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Just as a parting shot here, and I found this at the NAMI uh, national site, Uh, To illustrate that uh, you may not have a brain disorder in your family, but we all as a society need to face these issues. Uh, Half of all chronic, uh, let's see, uh, get to uh, where I was before here. Among the uh, 20 million adults in the U.S. who experienced a substance abuse disorder, 50%, 10 million adults had co-occurring mental illness. And an estimated 26% of homeless adults staying in shelters live with serious mental illness. Estimated 46% live with severe mental illness and or substance abuse disorders. Uh, so a, a societal issue. Um, so Julie Andrew, Greg Andrew, Liz Cornwell, Nick Cornwell, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Appreciate you. it. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. And uh, just to, to reemphasize a couple of events happening with the NAMI Cache Valley. Uh, as uh, Julie mentioned, uh, there is a family-to-family uh, sessions beginning on uh, Thursday, April 20th, 7 p.m. The NAMI offices, which are in the basement of Bear River Mental Health, and uh, that's uh, at 90 East 200 North in Logan. And then the peer-to-peer sessions uh, taught by individuals with brain disorders, two individuals with brain disorders, uh, that's beginning on Friday, April 28th, 5 p.m., Again, at the NAMI offices, which uh, are in the basement of Bear River Mental Health in uh, Logan. You can find out more about this at NAMICashValley.org. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.